As we continue in our series through the Heidelberg Catechism, we will arrive this evening at Lord's Day 11. But let us first consider the Word of God and turn to Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. The book of Acts chapter 4 and verses 11 and 12. And this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible Word. where Peter preaches, driven by the Holy Spirit, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. As for the reading of God's holy word, may the Lord add his blessing also to the preaching thereof. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in Lord's Days 7 through Lord's Day 22, the Heidelberg Catechism explains to us the content of the Apostles' Creed as a compact core summary of the Christian faith. As I've been telling you before, the Apostles' Creed was used by the young church to teach baptismal converts the basis of the Christian faith. In a sense, one could say, as the Heidelberg Catechism uh, teaches us the Apostles' Creed, that we have here one creed expounding or teaching another creed, which is quite unique. And since God is a triune God, and since he relates to us also in a triune way, the Apostles' Creed is structured according to the main activities of each of the three persons of the Godhead. And although each of these activities are indeed triune, each one is also mainly assigned to one person of the Trinity. We uh, call this the economic Trinity, if you remember that each of the three main activities uh, is triune, but is mainly assigned to one person of the Trinity. Uh, one divine person dominates each one of these, as we read in question answer 24 as it explains to us the structure of the Apostles' Creed, as it asked, how are these articles, the Apostles' Creed, that is, divided? And it says into three parts, God the Father and our creation, God the Son and our deliverance, and God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. And while, again, all three are uh, triune activities, creation, deliverance, and sanctification, each one of these major activities of the triune God are assigned to one person of the Trinity, mainly or predominantly. And according to this trifold structure of the Apostles' Creed, we have in weeks past looked at the Father as the Creator, the Upholder, and Ruler of all things. And we have learned how a firm understanding and a firm trust of this truth will help us, as it says, to be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, 
And for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature will separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. Do you see how this motif comes over and over and over again? both as we preach through the Scriptures in the morning, also as, as we go through the Heidelberg Catechism. God is always eager to comfort His people. God is always eager for His children to know that nothing can ever befall them that is outside of His control, that they never have to panic, that they never have to be fearful because He rules all things. And that is a very important truth to understand. That is a very important source of strength and peace, even in the midst of a raging storm. And as we have considered the Father in weeks past, we will now begin to behold the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, but mainly as a mediator. And we will do so in two separate points. First of all, Jesus, our only Savior. Jesus, our only Savior. And then secondly, Jesus, our exclusive Savior. Now, I'm aware that these two points sound quite similar, if not the same. But bear with me as there's an important and profound difference between Jesus as our only Savior and Jesus as an exclusive Savior. Let us consider Jesus as our only Savior first. The Heidelberg Catechism spends several Lord's Days on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, but three alone on his names, of the names of Christ. And the name before us, the first name before us this evening, uh, is the first article of the second part of the Apostles' Creed gets a little bit complicated because now we have Scripture, Heidelberg, and Apostles' Creed. But we are now moving, the Heidelberg Catechism is moving with us through the Apostles' Creed. We are moving from the first part about God the Father into the second part about God the Son, which, be, which begins with the words, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord. This is the sentence of the Apostles' Creed that Lord's Day 11 will take a closer look at. And it begins with question 29. And it asks, why is the Son of God called Jesus, meaning Savior? That is the question before us now. And the answer is, because he saves us from our sins and because salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else. So I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. This is what we're looking at. Now what this is teaching us, uh, first of all, is that the same way that we are to believe in the Father, we are to believe in the Son also, you cannot pick and choose. You cannot say, I believe only in the Father, or you cannot say, I believe only in the Son, but I dismiss the Father. But as much as you believe in the Father, you have to believe in the Son also. As Jesus teaches us, for example, in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Of course, he means 
the Father in this relationship. Or later in verse uh, 11 of John 14, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. So you see, we are to believe in the Son just as we believe in the Father, because it says whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So here we are again at the core of the Trinity. And it is important that our Trinity also, ref- our understanding of the Trinity also refers to our faith. That the same way we believe in the Father, we also believe in the Son. Now, considering the name Jesus, we have to understand that the Hebrew name Yeshua, or Joshua, if you want to say it this way, Jesus is just its Greek form, literally means Jehovah is helper. So that's what Yeshua means, Jehovah is helper. But in Jesus Christ, this name unfolds its full redemptive meaning as Savior. So we can say with good justification, with scriptural justification, that Yeshua, that Jesus, means Savior. Remember, Joshua in the Old Testament was the man who led Israel through the desert or from the desert into the promised land of Canaan. But he, of course, as was Moses, as we heard this morning, he, Joshua, was only a picture of the true Joshua, of the true Yeshua, the Lord Jesus Christ, who leads his people out of the misery and the condemnation of sin all the way into heaven. So Jesus is our heavenly Joshua, is he not? Joshua was the leader of God's people into a blessed land. But Jesus is our leader into blessedness. And I'm not saying this just like that. You have to understand, as the Heidelberg Catechism was written in German, and I happen to speak pretty good German, uh, I can tell you that the word that's being used in German for Savior is Seligmacher. And this means literally, blessed maker. You know, I think there's a gun that was called Widowmaker, right? That is a bad thing, isn't it? But there is a man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a blessed maker, a Seligmacher. A Dutch word is not much different. So he is really a blessed maker. He does not only lead us into a promised land or into a blessed land. He makes us blessed. He, he leads us right into blessedness. And that is a wonderful thing to understand and to know. Joshua brought the people of God into the land of Canaan, but Jesus brings us to glory, as we read in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, and here it comes, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So he leads us not only into a land, The land was all along, Canaan was all along a picture for eternal glory. This is where the Lord Jesus Christ leads us in contrast to the picture Joshua who only led into a material land. The Lord Jesus Christ leads us into the land of blessedness, eternal blessedness and eternal glory. 
And the Heidelberg Catechism says that he is called Savior because he saves us from our sins. And this is taken right out of Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, when an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream because Joseph's soul was in turmoil. Here is Mary being pregnant, and he knew it wasn't him. So what is going on here? And the angel says to him in a dream, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to make Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So you see, the Heidelberg Catechism took it right out of the Bible. So I have very little understanding when some criticize the practice of catechism preaching and saying we are not preaching the Bible. Oh yes, we are preaching the Bible. We've talked about this. And even if it's not the exact words always taken from the Bible, we're teaching biblical truth. You see, it's not only the words in Scripture that are inspired. It's also the doctrines. Otherwise, we have a very truncated view of the inspiration of Scripture. If it's only the words, we must only use these words, right? But then what is preaching? The preacher, even if he expounds the word, doesn't use the word of the Scriptures but his own. So the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, the Canons of Dort are representations of inspired scriptures. They will always remain subservient to scriptures if, in the unlikely case, that we find something that is not in line with scriptures after hundreds of years. Yeah, a fair chance. <laughs> but it is the truth of scripture, and therefore we are preaching it, and we are preaching it as the truth of scripture. And to this fact that Jesus saves his people, and that's why he's called Jesus, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 adds that he's able not only to save, but to save to the uttermost. We heard it this morning. To save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What a salvation. What a Savior we have in Jesus Christ. And that's why he is called Jesus, because he saves us, those who believe in him, those who flee to him, those who don't trust in their own good works or performance. He saves us from our sins. But we have to understand, in a pluralistic world like ours, he, Jesus, is not only one of many saviors, but the Heidelberg Catechism, rightly and absolutely correctly, is quick to add that he is not only one of many saviors because, it says, salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else. Children, listen. The world will tell us all kinds of stories. They will try to explain to you, yeah, we respect the faith of your parents, but there is several ways to truth. No, that is not true. There is no way under heaven, no other name that is given to us by which we shall be saved. Jesus is therefore our only Savior. In the history of the world, many have posed or are posing as saviors. Religious leaders, governments, politicians, philosophers, all kinds of people have promised much and kept Absolutely nothing, and necessarily so. 
Because, as we read in our text this evening, from the mouth of our God in Acts chapter 4, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other name for us as a Savior than the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, everybody else who promises any salvation must be a liar and wrong and not to be trusted. He, Jesus Christ, and no one else will save his people from their sins. You see, sin has deprived our first parents of paradise, and they were driven out from the presence of God. And because of that, man, until this day, still finds himself separated from God and under the power and of the slavery of sin. Man was lost and dead in his sins and trespasses. But that was not the end of the story because the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. God could have ended it right there after the fall, but he didn't because this redemption was introduced right after the fall when God himself announced judgment on the serpent saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That was the gospel. Right after the fall, the first mentioning of the gospel, that is one of the first fancy words that every seminarian knows, the proto-evangelion, the first evangelion, the prototype, the first time when the gospel was being preached. You know, when I was a young believer back in Europe, I was in a dispensational church, you know, a church that believes that there are different salvific ages and God saves and deals with his people differently in every single one, which of course is rubbish. We have seen already that there's only one covenant of grace. And I wanted to find out as a young believer, how were people in the Old Testament saved? Because it was not the age of grace yet, according uh, to dispensationalist. And I ran around from elder to elder, from pastor to pastor. How were people in the Old Testament saved? They couldn't tell me because they knew exactly. If they said that it was by works, then they would blow up the whole New Testament because there's no salvation apart from Jesus Christ, nor was there ever salvation apart from Jesus Christ. And if they said by grace, they would shoot their own system, dispensationalism and they would have become reformed. And they would have to believe in the covenant of grace as the one unifying motif of redemption throughout redemptive history. I couldn't get an answer. It was through reformed theology that I suddenly realized there was only one redemption, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and both were by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Although in the Old Testament, of course, they didn't know his exact name. They didn't know how he would come, when he would come. But God told them from Genesis 3.15 on, there will be one who will uh, crush the Satan's head. Which means there is hope. He will render him powerless. That's what it means to, to bruise his head, to render him powerless. And so Adam and Eve already had a gospel in the Old Testament. You see, we're not reformed because we think it's so nice to call ourselves reformed. 
But we understood that there is one covenant motif throughout the whole Scriptures, the covenant of grace. There is only one gospel. There is only one Savior. And there is only one salvation. And that is a wonderful thing. Add to that to the fact that we have a sovereign God who controls all details in history through his providence. What better thing is there than Reformed theology? We appreciate our brothers and sisters who are not Reformed, but we wouldn't change for the world, I hope. But in this Genesis 3.15, you have to understand, it talks about one Savior from the beginning on. It talks about the seed of the woman, or the offspring, different translations, one says offspring, one says seed, but it says, he shall bruise your head, he says to the serpent. So that's a singular he. He shall bruise your head. There is only one seed of the woman. It's, and there was only one seed of the woman who crushed Satan's head at Golgotha. It is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because, again, there is no, nor was there ever another name given to men by which they must be saved. It was only this name. There was no other name by which we can be saved. And we see the same truth expressed in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man in Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So this is the absolute truth, crystal clear, and not to be tempered with at all. There's only one Savior, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to see this, that there is a wonderful logic here before us, and it is this. Since Jesus is our only Savior by which we must be saved, he therefore also must be a complete Savior. His, sufficient, his uh, salvation must be sufficient. Otherwise, how can there be one Savior if this one Savior's salvation is not enough or not sufficient? But that's not even all. There is more. This wonderful chain of reasoning is not yet complete. So Jesus is not only our only Savior, whose salvation is fully sufficient to us, but in light of his sufficiency, he is also, and that's our second point, our exclusive Savior. He's not only our only Savior, but also our exclusive Savior. It is of immense importance that we understand the difference, uh, the different meanings between the words only and exclusive. Only means there is no other Savior. There is no other salvation. There is only one salvation in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. But exclusive is not the same word. According to Merriam-Webster, exclusive means excluding, it's a little bit of a tautology, or having power to exclude, or excluding every other from participation, or having exclusive jurisdiction which means everything else is accepted, taken away. Exclusive means it's only this and nothing else. And the Heidelberg Catechism is very clear about the fact that Jesus Christ is not only the only Savior by which we must be saved, but that He is by necessity also our exclusive Savior. He has exclusive jurisdiction when it comes to man's salvation. It's absolute exclusivity. 
And that's what question answer 30 tells us. First it asks, do those who look for their salvation and security in saints in themselves or elsewhere really believe in the only Savior Jesus? Do those who look for their salvation and security in saints in themselves or elsewhere really believe in the only Savior Jesus? So here's the word really which basically means there must be something they're referring to. There must be someone who says, yes, we believe in Jesus Christ plus somebody or something else, and we are true believers in Jesus Christ, because the, the word really gives it away. So at the time of the Heidelberg Catechism in the 1560s, there must have been a group, there must have been people who said, yeah, we believe in Jesus Christ, but we add other things, and we are also true believers in Jesus Christ. Well, of course, that was the Roman Catholics. And uh, to my dismay, I have to say, many evangelicals in this country do not seem to understand Roman Catholicism even a bit. Because I hear again and again evangelicals who are telling me, well, Ro Roman Catholics are really believers too. Uh, that is not the case. It's not the case according to the Bible, and it's not the case according to the three forms of unity, and especially here, the Heidelberg Catechism. Now, what I'm not saying is there cannot be a few uh, individual believers within a very confused organization like the Roman Catholic organization, but the official doctrine of the Roman Catholic organization, I'm very hesitant to call them a church. Um, uh, the, 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 their official doctrine is so different from the gospel of Jesus Christ that those who consistently believe what they teach cannot be saved. That's just how it is. There is, no, there is no arguing about this fact, and we see as we continue. So uh, there was the Roman Catholics, and they said, yeah, we believe in Jesus Christ, and they would call him a Savior all day long. But then they add the saints, and then they add all these uh, funny sacraments that they add, and then they say, well, we believe in Jesus Christ, and, but we are being taught here to say, no, you're not believing in Jesus Christ, because believing in Jesus Christ means only believing in Jesus Christ. Nothing to be added, but it's, of course, not only the Roman Catholics, especially uh, nowadays. It's not that much of a threat as it was in the 1560s. And that's, uh, that's why the uh, uh, Heidelberg Catechism adds people who believe in themselves. So Jesus Christ plus themselves. That's also not uh, a saving faith or elsewhere. Whenever you add something to the Lord Jesus Christ, it is not proper faith. It's not the proper gospel. And the same with the Mormons. You know, some people will tell me, I've heard uh, so-called Reformed theologians calling Mormons brothers and sisters. That is preposterous. The Mormons are a dangerous cult. There's nothing evangelical about them. There's nothing biblical about them. Just because they add the Bible, just because they add uh, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ to, to the book Mormon, uh, doesn't make them believers. And the Heidelberg Catechism is very clear about that. Uh, just think about a marriage. I haven't read the answer yet. I want you to understand the answer before I read it. Think of a marriage. A young man marries a young woman. And he assures her how much he loves her. And he assures everybody how much he loves her. 
And yet he runs around with other women all the time. What will people say? What will his wife say? You keep saying, you keep giving lip service to me and to our marriage and to your love to me, but in reality, you're not loving me, you're just using me, and you're running around with other women. That is everybody who says, just much worse, is everybody who says, yes, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, and yet uh, they run around with other gods, and they commit idolatry. And I think we are ready now for the answer, do those who look for their salvation and security in saints, in themselves, or elsewhere really believe in the only Savior, Jesus? And the answer is no. You can almost hear them raising their voice. No. Although they boast of being this, it, although they boast of being his, by their actions they deny the only Savior, Jesus. Either Jesus is not a perfect Savior, or those who in true faith accept this Savior have in him all they need for their salvation. And this is it. This is a perfect answer. This goes back to our marriage example. They boast of this, but by their actions they deny their lip service confession. That's the man who says he loves his wife and runs after other women. And he says, I love you so much. But by his actions, he denies his own words. So they say, although they boast, they boast of being this. They claim, they, they puff themselves up. Yes, they are Christ's. And that, you will hear that a lot when you uh, speak with uh, Roman Catholics. They will tell you, oh yes, we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe in the grace of God. It's all grace, but if you dig a little deeper, there's a whole lot of other idols involved in the mix. And the Heidelberg Catechism is absolutely clear. Although they boast of being his, by their actions they deny the only Savior, Jesus. Well, if he's the only Savior, why do you have to add others then? Why do you have to commit adultery? And it says, it's almost a little polemic here, either Jesus is not a perfect Savior, or those who in true faith accept this Savior have in him all they need for their salvation. Well, either he's not enough. You can't have it both ways, the Heidelberg Catechism says. You can on the one hand say he's a perfect Savior, but then you add idols. So what kind of a perfect Savior is he when you have to add other things and idols, not only uh, saints? There's a much sanitized version of this. You don't have to be a Roman Catholic running after saints. It could be a Reformed person in a Reformed church who claims and even believes that they believe in Jesus Christ. But in the end of the day, they believe in their own good works. I have spoken with a chaplain uh, in this area recently, and he told me that it's very often that he's being called to a deathbed of somebody. He's a nursing home chaplain. And then people get worried about their eternal state. And they ask, Reverend, I'm not sure what's going on. And he tells them, well, do you trust in Jesus Christ? Have you put your hope in Jesus Christ? And you know the answer he gets? He talks about an unholy trinity. He talks about, they tell him right away, well, I grew up in the church, I went to Christian school, and I never left the church. And then he says, yeah, what's that supposed to mean? Oh, yes, Reverend, I'm a Christian. Now you tell me, in who does such a person believe? In who does such a person put their hopes? 
not in Jesus Christ, but in themselves. Your profession of faith cannot save you. Your church cannot save you. Your baptism cannot save you. No Christian school in the world can save you. Only Jesus Christ can save you. And even if you add Jesus Christ to the mix, it renders this salvation powerless because you have not trusted in him alone. You've trusted, I don't know, in your ethnicity, in your baptism, in your forefathers, in the covenant, but not in Jesus Christ. Let me tell you in all clearness here, also the covenant cannot save you. You can believe in the covenant all day long and you will go to hell. It's the Christ of the covenant in whom you have to trust. Then the covenant becomes effective in your life. Nothing else. He is your only Savior and He is an exclusive Savior. He, is, he will not share His accomplished work. He will not share His throne and He will not share His glory with anyone else. That is the sin of idolatry. Remember in the Old Testament? They did believe in the true God of Israel, all right, but they kept adding stuff. The high places, for example, that was an ongoing sin in Israel. The high places, worship practices that were added from pagan nations. And God again and again says, there is no other God. You either trust in me alone or you're not mine. And that is what he's telling us this evening too. It's either Christ alone or no Christ at all. For there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. Praise be to his name. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Oh, how we thank you for this gospel, for this salvation, for this good news that reaches as far as the curse is found. Oh, Holy Spirit, help us and examine our hearts if our hope is really built on nothing less than Jesus Christ's righteousness. Oh, Lord, may we trust in you, in you alone, not in ourselves, not in saints, not in other quasi-saviors, not in our own works, but in Christ, Christ, and Christ alone. Help us, for we ask it in the name above all names, Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.